The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is really changing us. Okay, here's a question. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Okay, how sure are you of that? I know, like 1,000% that I am an extrovert. Just ask my wife. But if we here at Hello Monday have learned anything about the rest of you, our listeners over the last couple of years, it's that most of you actually identify as introverts. A couple months ago, when we launched our group on LinkedIn, I asked each of you by way of introduction to tell us five things that maybe we didn't know that weren't on your LinkedIn profile. Well, the number one most frequent thing that you told us was that you were an introvert. So, naturally, I suggested we focus an episode on it. Today's guest is the top person you all wanted to hear on the subject. She wrote the definitive book on introverts over 10 years ago. Now that's a long time to spend on one subject, but her passion hasn't waned one bit. It's funny, I'm really not sick of talking about it. I don't think I'll ever be sick of talking about it. That is the one and only Susan Kane, best-selling author and introversion expert. Susan researches and writes about the human condition. And today, she's gonna walk us through two of her best sellers, Quiet, which has been out for more than a decade now, and Bittersweet, which has just been with us a year. We'll learn how to understand ourselves better, and we'll talk about how experiencing the fragility of life connects us all. And then, then we'll get to the new norms involved in today's version of The Office, and how introverts, like a lot of you, can make the most of them. Susan and I started with the basics. Here she is. The easiest rule of thumb that I give people is to assess how you generally feel when you go to a party or a social gathering that you're truly enjoying with company that you truly love. If you're an extrovert, it's as if you have an internal battery that is getting charged up by that experience. And so after two hours, you're full of energy and looking for more. And if you're an introvert, no matter how socially skilled you might be, and no matter how much you love those people, at about the two-hour mark, it's like your battery's drained and you just wish you could teleport home. Another one that you could ask yourself is just like, if you imagine that it's Saturday morning, you have no professional obligations, no personal obligations, how do you really want to spend your time and how many people do you want to spend it with in your perfect world? That gives you a real sense. Um, I am a true extrovert just Mm -hmm. through and through. Um, and my wife is a true introvert, true introvert. And as I have actually connected with your work over the years, we have become better at communicating about Mm -hmm. that difference as a difference rather than just a argument all the time. And one of the things we have communicated about Susan is how we use our Saturday mornings because I'm ready to be out and visiting with people around 830. She is not. (laughs) Yeah. Introverts and extroverts are so often drawn to each other. 
as romantic partners, as friends, as colleagues, the whole works. So it's very common to have couplings like yours. Um, but then one of the most common conflicts that you run into is exactly what you just said. of like, how are we going to spend our free time? And it is true that once you understand those differences through this lens, it takes the personal rancor out of it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And then you can just start kind of negotiating what's going to work for both of you. Well, so are there more introverts in the world or more extroverts in the world? It's hard to know. Um, some studies have said that it's about 75% extroverts, 25% introverts. Then another study said 50-50. Um, I suspect these differences have to do with how are we actually defining what these terms mean and everybody defines it a little bit differently. But anyway, I, I would say introverts is about a third to a half of the population. So one out of every two or three people that you know. Um, well, it is interesting to me that when I asked uh, people in our show to self-define, I'd say more than 50% of the people who opted in and said, yes, I'd love to tell you five things about myself. One of those five things was I am an introvert. Susan, nobody said I am an extrovert. And so I'm curious about what it is about culture that makes people feel seen by or feel the, the desire to connect to the identity of an introvert. It's because if you're an extrovert in this culture, you don't really have to notice it very much because yeah. everything that you like to do, the ways that you like to interact with people culture is set up for that. So you're just kind of swimming along with the way things are set up and you naturally wouldn't think about it much. Whereas if you're an introvert, from the time you were very, very small, you were aware, whether consciously or not, you were aware that the way you wanted to spend your time was different from the way your nursery school teacher said you should be spending it, different from the way camp was set up, different from the way school was set up, where you like go into a classroom building from morning until you know seven hours later and you might enjoy it but feel drained by the whole thing and often a sense that there's something wrong with being the way you are or at least something wrong with the way you wish to spend your time and when you start understanding that you feel like you should change something about yourself you should change the way you want to spend your days and the simple act of realizing oh wait a minute the way I am can actually be the key to my greatest strengths that that other people might not have and the way that I want to spend my Saturday mornings is completely legitimate, that can come as a real revelation. You know, we began by talking briefly about me wanting to take my four-year-old to school. He's going through a period where, despite the fact that he appears to like school, he's really fighting drop-off. And what my wife and I have come to understand is that this kid is a deep introvert. Mm -hmm. And the task of being with peers from 8.30 in the morning to 3 takes everything he has. Yes. And he knows it. Yeah. What I would add to that, of what's also probably happening for him, since you say drop-off is, is a key moment, is introverts in general tend to be more sensitive to change, um, to changes of environment, changes in what you're doing at a given moment. Right. So the act of transition itself can be the issue. I love thinking about that as an attribute of introversion. It, it leads me to a larger question, Susan, which is there are things that I assume that I understand about who an introvert is. But there are many things that you have brought up that actually run counter to how I might think of an introvert. 
Like, for example, an introvert can be very socially cued in and can be very charismatic, right? Introverts, like everyone else, come in a thousand different varieties. Talking about this topic is it can be so revelatory. And then there's also the danger of affixing people into a very narrow category that doesn't explain all the amazing complexity of every individual human. So yes, there are introverts who come in social and charismatic varieties and some who really are more like traditional loners who might not shine um, in a social setting. So one other question that I've wondered about is how our tendency towards introversion or extroversion might change over the course of a lifetime. If you were a child, let's say, who tended to be shy or introverted, they're not quite the same thing. And we can talk about that. As you grow, you are probably going to acquire a whole set of skills that get layered in with your shy slash introverted temperament. Um, and so you might end up kind of appearing as more of an extrovert as you grow because, you know, you've learned how to give talks, you've learned how to manage at the networking event, even if it's not your favorite thing to do. So you, you could say you've kind of become a different person through the layering in of all those skills. And at least your outward appearance is going to look a little more extroverted probably than when you started. But then on the other hand, there's the dynamic that all of us as we grow tend to become more fundamentally introverted in time. Mm -hmm. um, and what personality psychologists say is that you still kind of keep what they call your rank order, which is to say, so Jesse, you're you've said you're super extroverted. So let's say you were like the third most extroverted person in your high school class. Um, if you go to your high school reunion decades later, you'll still probably be more or less the third most extroverted, but all of you will have mellowed out <laughs> considerably <laughs> with time. So I'm very curious to talk to you about how the shift in the way work is happening mm -hmm. post-pandemic yeah. um, is better and worse for people who identify as introverts. And I'll share a little bit about um, my work situation. Mm -hmm. Before the pandemic season, it was entirely in person. In fact, I invited you to come on the show in 2019, and I was so befuddled by your response that you would love to do it virtually because I hadn't done an interview virtually and didn't <laughs> think that that was a thing that I ever would do. That's that's how committed I was to everything happens in person. And that's how life here at LinkedIn worked. Everybody showed up for work mm -hmm. and FaceTime was actually important. So then we had a long period of time where nobody showed up in person mm -hmm. and we have moved to a hybrid model. And there are as many variations of hybrid as there are workplaces yes. in our culture, right? But here there are a couple days Tuesday, today is one of those days where you can expect to see a lot of people mm -hmm. and a couple of days where you can expect that if you show up, you'll see no one or you can stay home. Mm -hmm. um, seems like this would be the golden error for introverts. Is that so? There are so many different varieties, but the kind of situation you described is for many introverts quite golden. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because everybody has got some degree of social needs and social cravings. And the office can be really fun for introverts as well. So getting to modulate it a little bit the way you describe can be incredibly ideal. I do think that one downside for all of us, but maybe more for introverts, is the proliferation of everything needing to be done on or expected to be done on Zoom. I'm sure you've had this experience. I know I have so many of the um, the interactions that I used to take th 
on a phone call or I would be like walking in the woods while I was having it or driving or something like that. Now there's an expectation that you're going to be pinned in front of your computer in your office taking that call. And I think that's not ideal for everyone, but introverts do feel that more intensely. I agree. That's exhausting. I'm hoping that we're just on the path to a work that works better for us. And this is like a thing that we need to all learn by doing doesn't really work very well for people. I agree. Right? Because there are very few things we need to do while looking at each other. <laughs> right now, there's a feeling of it's not quite socially acceptable. If one person offers a Zoom, it's not quite socially acceptable to say, I'd rather do it as a phone call. Yeah. Or at least if you ask for that, you feel you're taking some kind of a leap. Well, it suggests that you're downgrading. It's like when somebody asks you on a dinner date and you say, well, let's do a drink. Let's do it at five, right? Yes. You immediately feel like, oh, they're not meeting me with the same level of interest that I have for them. Right. It's something like that. I actually do believe there's a huge value to people meeting in person. There's obviously like a connection and chemistry that nothing else can replace. But I don't think a Zoom... Um, goes very far towards replacing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, a phone call can actually, in some ways, be a more intimate connection than a Zoom. Why is that? I believe it's something primal about the human voice. We've all had this feeling now in the era of podcasts, right, where you're listening to some of your favorite podcasts and you've got your earbud right in your ear. And it's like you're channeling that person's voice and spirit directly into your brain without any competing cues coming from your monitor. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. It sort of leaves me feeling seen or understood in a way that like video would not do. Absolutely. I mentioned before that I'm an extrovert. I love lots and lots of connecting. It gives me energy and ideas. But there is something that saps my batteries, no matter what I do. Asynchronous digital communication. I'm talking about Teams and Slack. It's like a million people tapping me on the shoulder and whispering in my ear until I just want to shout at them, enough. I feel so weird about that. As an extrovert, shouldn't I love these tools and this always-on nature? Well, here's how Susan sees it. Well, yes, extroverts and introverts might have different levels of tolerance for those kinds of things in general, um, but we're all living in a world that is so over the top in terms of social and digital bombardment that it's too much for all of us. I was very struck early on in the pandemic when it was still really in the kind of lockdown mode. I was struck by talking to extroverted friends of mine who said, you know what, this is actually good for me too. Like I'm realizing I was just too much out there, too much on all the time before this happened. And so they were thinking about how they wanted to recalibrate. I don't think the world offers that many pathways for living a sane and moderate balance between these two poles unless and until you start crafting it really actively for yourself by thinking really deeply about what's the mode in which you're most happy. The way our culture is built right now, it takes a lot of thought and deliberate engineering of your daily life to get it right. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Susan teaches me how accepting some of life's melancholy can make the whole adventure feel even sweeter. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Susan and I spent the first half of our show talking about how introversion and extroversion shape our experiences of the world. It happens that Susan's most recent book is also about the ways that another pair of connected opposites shape our experiences. In this case, that book is called Bittersweet, and it's about joy and sorrow. In lovely ways, these concepts feel similar. I mentioned that to Susan. When I first started researching and writing Bittersweet, I thought of it as a completely different book from Quiet. I was pretty far into it when I realized, oh, there's actually this big similarity here of um, both of them being about kind of a deeply felt way of being in the world that doesn't necessarily match up with what the dominant culture says you're supposed to be like. We live in a world in which joy and sorrow forever go together. And we live in a world of impermanence. That's the way things are. And that there's something about being attuned to those states of the human condition that is actually connected to a a kind of deeply piercing joy. And it's a kind of bridge to a connection with each other because the more we tune in to the sorrows as well as the joys, the more we really can open up to each other in a very deep way. And so living in a society as we do that says you should be like smilingly on all the time is to cut off one of the strongest bridges that we have of connection. And that that bridge is is to trace the sorrow in order to find the ways in which sorrow has similarity that allows us to understand each other as part of a larger whole, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of all the different workplaces I've been in in my life, and there would always come the moment with a colleague or colleagues where you suddenly realize that you're opening up to each other about who you really are and what your true challenges are in a way that you don't show in your usual self-presentation at work. And it's at that moment that you realize now we're true friends. There's sort of a back and forth there, right? Like you take a little bit more of a risk in sharing something personal and then they do and then you do and they do. And there is that moment that 
you talk about when you look up and you think, oh, I've, I've just connected with him. Exactly. The more we can show it to each other, the closer we are. It's the reason that we listen to music in the first place or read novels or, um, you know, whatever engagement with art we have. It's usually driven by the artist in some way being willing to express the truth of what it is to be alive. And we're all hungry for that truth. And the sad music is actually what began to take you in the direction of this idea, right? Yeah. I mean, I love all kinds of music. And I especially feel this kind of almost ecstatic thrill when I listen to sad music. And I could never understand it. And I had this moment, I wrote about it in the book. Um, I used to be a lawyer, a corporate lawyer in my old life. And I had this moment when I was in law school where some friends were picking me up in my dorm room on the way to class. And they got there and I was like blasting out my Leonard Cohen or whoever it was. And, And they thought it was hilarious. They were like, why are you listening to this funeral music? And at the time, I just thought, oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of funny. And and we went to class. But I couldn't stop thinking about it for decades after. I was thinking, well, why, why do I love that music so much? And why did it seem so funny to them? Like, what is it about our culture that would make it strange to be blasting that out in your dorm room? But I sensed deep down it was a much bigger question yeah. of what the human condition really is. I think about Rufus Wainwright's Hallelujah, yes. which was my my anthem um, during one particular several-year period of, of graduate school. I love his version of Hallelujah. It's so good. Right? It just takes you to that spot. And, and what you're talking about, how does it sit next to actual depression? Because that is not what you're writing about. I'm glad that you asked that question because I do think it's important to distinguish them. I think there's nothing really to celebrate in depression and that if anybody listening today suspects that's what they're experiencing, they definitely should please seek help for that. Um, I'm talking more about a state where you're more in control of it, whereas with depression, you don't have as much of a choice. And I'd say the other big difference is that with depression, there's a kind of a numbing to the world and an inability to interact creatively with it. Whereas with this state of like heightened melancholy and awareness, it's like a a state of deeply intensified feeling. So you're feeling the sorrow of impermanence at the exact same time that you're feeling the miraculous beauty of a sunset. And those two things are connected. It's like the sunset is especially beautiful because it's so fleeting and it won't even be there in a few seconds. Those things, two things go together. Right. It's a poignancy. It's right? a poignancy. Yeah. Which is a word I found yeah. myself using again and again. So people might think that you came to this work because of the experience of the pandemic, but you were working on it before, right? I was working on it for years before um, because I take a while with my books. I obviously didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. And now people will say things like, oh, yeah, this book is very timely. And to me, it was always timely because you don't need a pandemic to understand the precarious and beautiful nature of human existence. Like we're always living on a precipice. At the same time, the pandemic for you personally was you experienced an extraordinary amount of of loss, right? 
How did that season the writing process for you and the research process? I lost my brother very early on in the pandemic and then my father um, almost a year later. So yes, because I had been so deeply immersed in the subject for so many years before that. I think it's more that the writing process seasoned my reaction to grief. It didn't diminish in any way the the visceral nature of grief, but it put it into some kind of a context yeah. for me of like being of this being part of like the river of humanity somehow. Um, and then I experienced that again, not long ago, I had a health scare. I, I was getting my yearly mammogram and had to come back because they thought they saw something funny. And I came back and it really looked for, for some moments as if there was something quite problematic. Um, and I remember during those moments, I, I was literally shaking with fear. And at the same time that I was shaking, I also had this sense of a kind of calm because because I just understood all of this in a different context. Everything that you and I are ever going to experience, humans have been going through it forever. And there's a real solace in that. Yeah. Deeply. You know, your book has been out in the world now for a year, and there has been so much momentum around it. It has been received strongly. And I'm wondering if you have any ideas about why this body of ideas resonate so completely right now for us, particularly for us in the United States and the culture we exist in? Well, the United States in particular, has been a culture that has never wanted to talk about these subjects. I mean, people were actively steered away from it. It's written into our fabric, it intensified in the 19th century. You weren't even supposed to talk about bad weather. Everything had to be cheerful and upbeat. So that's been where we've been for centuries, really. And I do think we're in a moment right now, in particular because of the pandemic, where people are starting to rethink that. And there's a new social acceptability to confronting the joys and sorrows of life as being an interconnected whole. So whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, and no matter your stance on the ephemeral nature of life, we are definitely at this inflection point in the office. Sure, we know more than ever that we're all just people. But how much of that do you show or hide when you're at work? I think we're at a stage of trying to work out the way this should be happening or shouldn't be happening at work um, because there's certainly much more of an open door for it. And then there's also a feeling that's very legitimate of, well, I don't always want to be showing up for work and bearing my soul um, and talking about my deepest joys and my deepest sorrows. We're in a period right now of needing to figure out these norms about how personal do we want to be at work and how personal should we be. To bring us full circle, I'm curious what you have learned over the years about how to cultivate and grow leadership in introverts and make sure in our organizations that we are making room for their gifts rather than not noticing them because perhaps they're quiet? This is a really important question because we know from the research that introverts tend to 
get passed over for or not um, not cultivated in the first place for leadership roles. But then we also know from research that once they're in those roles, they actually deliver really good performance. So that's a mismatch there. And it's like a waste of, of all that talent and energy. So what can we do on the institutional side? I've seen companies really start to like monitor or do surveys of their hiring and promotion process and to see whether it is biased against a more introverted style of being. Um, and then to do things like, you know, sit down with people one by one and find out what would that person's goal be for three or five years from now? Because very often somebody who's more quiet is presumed to be less ambitious when in fact there's no correlation between quiet and ambition. Sometimes just knowing that a person has that kind of goal and then you can kind of put your heads together and figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get this person from A to B? And there are all kinds of small things that can be done. Like if you want to start showcasing a, a young person coming up for leadership, maybe on the next Zoom call, you put them in charge of discussion topic XYZ. And maybe it's only going to last for one or two minutes, but for at one or two minutes, they're in the spotlight and then they build up little by little from there. That was Susan Cain, author of the best-selling books, Quiet and Bittersweet. You can find links to her books and her newsletter, The Kindred Letters, over on her website, susancain.net. This week, join us on Office Hours. We'll meet as usual on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. This week, we're going to talk, of course, about introversion and extroversion. So whether it takes you all of yourself to show up for half an hour Wednesday or whether it's one of 17 things you will do socially, I hope you will join us. If you can't find us on the LinkedIn news page, you can always email me and our producer, Sarah Storm, for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And speaking of Sarah Storm, this week we're bringing back our new spring segment, Quick Tips, and she is joining us. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jesse. Wait, so what's this again? Okay, so here's the thing. So often after an episode, you write in to share your own thoughts or advice on a topic, dear listeners. Often that advice is so good that I'm like, why didn't we include that in the first place? So, Sarah, we're going to share the best of it right here. Awesome. And this week, we sifted through the great responses we got from our show with Dan Pink about timing. He has a good take on morning routine, which caused so many of you to write in with your own morning routine tips. I could go on and on about my own morning routine, but I'm not going to here, Sarah, because I want to plug morning pages. This particular response comes from Amanda Rudd in L.A. You want to read it? Amanda says, yes to morning pages. I started aspiring to write them daily for the last year or so. I'd never really connected to the benefits of journaling, probably because I did it three times annually, but the consistency and low pressure of setting that timer and going has unlocked new layers of seeing how I think. I noticed recently that I journaled the length of a novel over the last six months. Oh, my God. Holy crow. Sarah, do you do morning pages? I, I like, like Amanda, I am an aspiring morning pages person. But unlike Amanda, I have definitely not journaled the length of a novel. That's the thing, though, Sarah. I think that if we all look back at these little tiny practices we build up, they feel so small in the moment. But they add up. Like, I have a friend who's writing a novel. She's probably listening to this. Susie, if you're listening to this, keep writing. Susie also has four children, the youngest of which are identical twin boys, and they're nine months old. Think about that, Sarah. 
I'm I'm shocked. So okay, so if Susie finds the time to write a novel, I can find the time to write some morning pages. No, here's what I have to tell you. Susie has decided not to write a novel, but simply to write eight words a day. She's done the calculation. And about a decade from now, she's going to have a novel. It's a pretty good idea, right? That's incredible. (laughs) That's amazing. Listen, folks, keep your comments coming because we love them here. It feels like you're in the studio with us when we read them and share them. Comment on LinkedIn, send us an email to hellomonday at linkedin.com, and definitely let us know if you'd like us to feature your ideas on our quick segment. Again next week? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Hey, Sarah, since you're here this week, why don't you read us out in the credits? All right. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. I produce the show. It's engineered and mixed by a Safki drone. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Rafa Faria, Lolia Briggs, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer help us charge our social batteries. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'm Sarah Storm. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. When I first started, I was always writing in conditions of great pleasure. So like I would always write in a sunny cafe window. I would have my daily latte while I was writing some kind of chocolate, something like that. And I still do that to this day love coffee, but I don't allow myself to have it any other time except when I'm writing. So I, it's like a Pavlovian reaction to me. So I think of sitting down at my laptop as the thing I get to do every day. So even when we go on family vacation, I found that I get very crabby if I don't give myself a few hours with my laptop and my coffee and all the rest. So I I just do that every day of my life.